pick up with Acts 3, uh, 11 and 12, which um, is called Peter's Second Sermon. I hadn't really thought about that before. We were really um, aware of Peter on the day of Pentecost preaching that marvelous sermon, and then 3,000 being saved was the result of it. Um, but Peter actually preached two sermons <laughs> in the book of Acts. So um, let me just pick up to start with my mom's good old Haley's Bible handbook that I love so much and just kind of give a summation of what's been going on and what, what we've been talking about these last week, this last week or two. Um, it says, On the day of Pentecost, the fiery tongues and roaring as of a mighty wind brought together the astonished multitudes. That gave Peter a vast audience for his first public proclamation of the gospel. Apparently, some days had passed. Pentecost crowds had returned home. The city had quieted down. The apostles kept busy instructing the believers and working signs. And now a notable miracle, the healing of a lame man, right in the temple gate, a familiar sight to the whole city, again set the city all astir. And to the amazed multitudes, Peter attributed the healing to the power of the risen Christ. And this brought the number of believers to 5,000 men as he told again the beloved gospel story. So we're going to look at that beginning with Acts chapter 3, verse 11. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, this is the man who had been lame from his mother's womb and now has been, has gone up with a leap. <laughs> with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, entered the table, uh, the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God, right? Remember that song from Sunday school days? While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, Keep that in mind. Put your, little, your finger there. Men of Israel. This is who he's addressing. Why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us? As if by our own power or piety, we had made him walk. We had made him walk. And now Peter is going to flow into his second sermon. And I discovered as I was studying for this that the, the pattern of Peter's sermon both his first one and this one that we're going to look at today, the pattern of the sermon, the theme of the message, became the common sermon in the early church. This is basically the pattern. First, an explanation of the events that had taken place, that Jesus was the Christ sent from the Father, that he was rejected and put to death by the ones he came to save. Number two, the gospel of Jesus Christ the fundamentals of his death, his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead on the third day, and his ascension to glory and sending of the Holy Spirit. And then third, an exhortation to repent and be baptized. This same, so if, you, if you're looking for a good sermon and you don't know how to find a good sermon, this is basically what the apostles used as their sermon outline. That's what I discovered as I was studying this. You can't go wrong with this sermon pattern, this outline. This same sermon outline is repeated in chapter 3, which we're going to look at right now. In chapter 10, when Peter goes over to the house of Cornelius in Caesarea um, by the sea, he basically uses the same sermon pattern. 
And then it's repeated again in Acts chapter 13 by the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. We see the same basic pattern and outline of a sermon. So what does Peter begin with as he begins to speak to the men of Israel? He says, don't you dare start worshiping us. Don't you start giving glory to us. The first thing he does is, I'm not going to be some be up on some pedestal that you're going to be watching me. He turns their attention to Jesus. Not as though he and John are anything special and worthy of praise. And that's something we really need to remember, don't we? As if God, we want God to use us in power. We want the gifts of the Holy Spirit to move through us. But not so that we can feel like we are somehow better or special in the kingdom and in God's sight or in the eyes of others. We always must give the glory and the praise to Jesus. Frankie, I need you because of... Okay. Now let's, let's continue now, now into this pattern of this, of this um, sermon. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. This is very similar to what he told them in his first sermon. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 23, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. <laughs> I know. So as we've talked about, you guys, you're distracting me so much. This is really hard. As we've talked about, we've got a clock going here. We learned that when Peter stepped out, um, when the the 120 were speaking in tongues, and he began to, to speak to the crowd. He said, these men aren't drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. So this Peter's first sermon began at 9 o'clock in the morning. And we, we determined that it must have gone to at least 9, 9 p.m. because 3,000 were saved, and they baptized all of them, right? So Peter gave his sermon. Verse 40 says he spoke many, many other words, so there was all kinds of discussion and talking and explanation. And then people were saying, what must we do? They repented, they were saved, and it took all day long to baptize um, 3,000. So in between Peter's first sermon and the second one that we're looking at today, John Dunn taught us about verses 42 through 47, where it says that this group now of 3,000 new believers, the apostles and the 3,000 new believers, the first church in Jerusalem, they were, they were devoted to teaching, to fellowship, to discipleship, breaking bread together, prayer together. Signs and wonders were being done in their midst. They were forming community, learning what it was to be the people of God, the church. Um, meeting house to house. And God, it, sa- it says God was adding to their number daily. So I bring this up to say, We don't know exactly how long, in verse 42 to 47, we don't know exactly how long that went on between Peter's first sermon, the salvation of the 3,000, and then the second sermon we're looking at today. But we could say 
it was a few weeks at least, maybe a few months, that this community is forming and they're learning how to live Christian life together. Then chapter 3 begins and we have the healing of the lame man. So maybe two, three months after the day of Pentecost, something like that. And that gives rise to Peter's second sermon that we're looking at today. So I read the first few verses of it. Let's pick up in verse 16. Peter's continuing here. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter says several important things about this man who has been healed at the gate beautiful. He says, um, you, you know him. <laughs> this man's been at the gate for 40 years. So you guys all know this man. And you've seen him in his former condition and you see how he is now. Actually, the news is all over town. Everybody's talking about what has happened. You've seen this man. You saw how he was before. You see how he is now. The news is spreading all over town. And you see that he is in perfect health, Peter says. The faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health. Not, it's not a partial, partial healing. He's not partially restored. It is a total healing. He goes on in verse 17. And now, brethren, again, who's he speaking to? He addresses men of Israel. These are the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Passover is over. People from all different countries have gone home. So these are the residents of Jerusalem and of Israel that are left in Jerusalem after the time of the feast. He says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, and that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. He says, you acted in ignorance. We've talked about this before. These are the very people who were crying out for his death. The very ones who were saying, crucify him, crucify him. The very ones whom Pilate said, should I release for you um, this Jesus? And they said, no, no, Barabbas, Barabbas. They were calling for a murderer, Barabbas, to be released instead of Jesus. So he said, you acted in ignorance. You did not know what you were doing on that day when you called for his crucifixion. Jesus himself said that from the cross. And we've got that in Luke um, 23:34. John, if you want to read that for us. Luke 23:34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, and they parted his raiment and cast lots. Okay, so Jesus himself said they don't know what they're doing. And Peter reiterates that. You acted, I know that you acted in ignorance. Isn't God's mercy and compassion so great that Jesus himself would say that from the cross, and Peter would reiterate. He was, he was stern with them. He was harsh in both of his sermons. He pointed his finger and he said, You delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate. Um, his servant, you did it. He didn't mince words, but he said, You didn't know what you were doing. God still longs to have compassion on you. God still wants to have mercy on you. <clears throat> See, the importance that, that I'm 
kind of emphasizing here that he's speaking specifically to the men of Israel. If anyone on the planet should have known who Jesus was, it was them. (laughs) These were the people, these were the learned people who had the truth, who at one time the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory, was seen from their temple. Um, So as men of Israel, if they had believed their own patriarchs and their own prophets, they would have known. They would have known better than to crucify the Son of God sent to them, their Messiah. Which, which Peter says here in verse 18, God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets. So they should have known, they should have seen the signs. And on that note, we talked about how signs and wonders were happening, but there's been signs since the beginning. I mean, Abraham taking Isaac to Mount Moriah and then God saying, stop, don't touch the lad, and providing a ram. That was a sign. That was a foretelling of what God was going to do. When we talk about signs, let's just talk about that word because maybe, maybe you don't know, what, what, how do I know what a sign is? What does a sign do? Well, it points the way. Points the way. Last Tuesday, this this Tuesday night, two days ago, John and Rick and I were driving to Noonan to have a meeting with some of our the saints down there, some friends down there. And as we were on I-85 South, I kept seeing a sign that said Birmingham. Birmingham. Well, did that mean we were in Birmingham? I hope not, or we would have really been off course. <laughs> no, we weren't in Birmingham, but it meant keep watching, keep following. Keep getting in the correct lane. (laughs) Follow every sign that says Birmingham, and eventually you'll end up in Birmingham, right? So all of the Old Testament is full of signs. From the story of Abraham that I just mentioned, the story of Joseph being mistreated by his own brethren, and yet then turning around and saving them. Um, Joshua was a type of Jesus. The story of Boaz taking Ruth into his family and redeeming her points to Jesus. All of the feasts, Passover and First Fruits and Yom Kippur, Tabernacles, the prophets, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, everything, everything in the Old Testament points, points, points to Jesus. It's a sign of Jesus. So these men of Israel, they just, they didn't, they weren't very good at following the sign, were they? <laughs> If they, if they wanted to get to Birmingham, they weren't paying much attention to the signs that said Birmingham and they were going to end up over in Wisconsin or something because they were not looking at the signs. Jesus himself told two men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection that all of the Old Testament pointed to him. That's Luke 24:27. You've got that one, John. Luke 24:27. Luke 24:27 And beginning at Moses and all the prophets he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Amen. So Peter makes this very clear. You guys should have known, men of Israel, and you and yet you did this to the son of God, the Messiah. Yet you acted in ignorance because you were not paying attention to the signs. So what's God's response to that? 
God's response is number is in verse 19. Repent, therefore. It's not too late. Praise God. It's not too late. Repent, therefore. Of what? Of their unbelief. Of their negligence. Of their failure to pay attention to what their God was so faithfully showing them. The way of salvation, of his goodness and mercy and redemption. They, they had their own thing going on. They had their religious rites going on. They, had, they were immersed in interpreting the law and not watching for the sign of what God Almighty was doing. But Peter said, it's not too late. God has mercy on you. God has compassion for you. So verse 19, repent, therefore, and return. Repent and return. When we repent, we turn away from what we're doing wrong. When we return, we return to God. Repent and return. That's very important. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I love that verse. God is so merciful. It's not too late. And I really love that verse right now, (laughs) because I believe this specific call, repent and return, is going out in the United States today. I don't know how many of you watched The Return with Jonathan Kahn, but that's something that God put on his heart to do five years ago. And God brought it all together on the mall in Washington, D.C., and it was a full day, actually Friday night and then all day Saturday, of repenting and then returning to the Lord and, and beseeching him that refreshing or revival would come to our nation. Now, this coming Saturday, it's going to happen again in another form with um, Sean, how do you say his last name, John? Fout. 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 <laughs> Sean Fout, who's been going around doing the Let Us Worship events in all the major cities in the United States, he's going to be on the, in the mall in Washington, D.C., and the same heart is there. Repent. Turn from our sin. Return to the Lord and beseech that he will bring refreshment. He will bring revival. He will refresh us in our weariness and in our despair and in our turbulence in this country right now. I want to tell you guys, there's, there is no healing, there is no cleansing, there is no refreshment from your tiredness and from the weariness of the battle and the, the darkness and the defilement without repentance. We can't ask God to bring revival. Just fix our problems, Lord. Refresh us and and fix our problems that we have. But we don't want to repent. We want to just keep doing things the way we're doing them. That's impossible. It has to start with repent, therefore. Turn away from. Turn to God. And then times of refreshing can come. Amen? We cannot ask God to bring revival without repentance. They are tied together. It says, repent in order that. So if you are asking God on a personal level, on a family level, or even interceding for our nation, if you are asking for breakthrough, you're asking for answers, you're asking for strength in your, in your being, you're asking for refreshing and renewal, but you're not allowing, you're not willing to allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, and repent of sin, I hate to tell you, not much is going to happen. 
I've been doing a lot of repenting lately <laughs> because I I need refreshing. I feel a great need for refreshing, and I feel a great need for returning to the Lord in an intimacy that I have been, I just know I desperately need. So repentance goes together. These go together. Um, and the result of repentance is good news. I want you to hear that. It's good news. This is not hell and damnation and brimfire that I'm speaking to you. Peter says, repent that your sins may be wiped away. (laughs) We walk around with heavy burdens. We walk around feeling depressed. Um, Our sin gives Satan a legal right to harass us. So repentance is not a bad thing. It is a good thing that even, even men of Israel who had the responsibility to carry the word of God, to be a light to the nations, who were given first place by the Creator to be the people through whom He would send the Word and the redemption and the promises. They didn't pay any attention to the signs. They didn't know their own Messiah when He came. They rejected Him. They even put Him to death. And yet Peter says, it's not too late. You can still repent. Repentance is a good thing. So do not hear hellfire and brimstone from me today I want you to know that this is good news and that repentance is a good thing that the result is refreshing don't we all need a little refreshing (laughs) don't we all need a little reviving it starts with repentance it is not condemnation we know what God says about that and what Paul says about that in Romans 8 1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't want us in conda- condemnation for even a minute. That is not God's will for us, is to remain in condemnation. So that it, don't link repentance with condemnation. Oh, I have to just feel terrible about myself and hate myself and ruminate about all the bad things I've done. That is not repentance. That's self-pity. That's self-obsession. Condemnation is something of the devil. Repentance is something of God. That brings refreshing. Amen? Okay. So <clears throat> um, I think they said this at the, at the return when we were in the time of, of repenting. Admit it, quit it, and forget it. <laughs> so you can move on. God wants us free. He's for us, not against us. Okay. So let's finish. And I've got a couple scriptures. I'm going to ask you to read Frankie in just a minute. So Peter's... Wrapping up his sermon here in verse 20, he's just said, Repent and return, that your sins may be wiped away. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. He's driving this home to the men of Israel. You guys have been the keepers of this word. You've been the scribes. You've written down the law. You've interpreted the word. God has been giving you these promises. He has spoken by the mouth of his prophets from from Genesis to Malachi. <laughs> really, I've told people, you've, you've probably heard me say this before, your Bible should look like this. <laughs> it comes full circle. What God gave to us in Genesis, what he gave to Adam and Eve, was paradise. It was perfection. 
It was perfect fellowship with him. He would show up in the garden at 4 o'clock in the afternoon every day and walk with Adam, and they would just talk and fellowship and have unbroken intimacy and fellowship. And he gave Adam total authority over all of his creation. Adam was so brilliant. Adam was so creative. We don't know how far we've fallen. (laughs) We don't know how dumbed down we've become because of sin. That Adam could speak with God face to face and they could converse. We were created to be far more than what we have, the status quo we've accepted now. But So what Peter is saying here is that as, as we repent, as we return, as our sin is washed away, then we begin to, the, the restoration of all things about which God spoke, that is what he, God is working towards. He wants to bring us full circle. And if you read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and then you read the end of Revelation, you see that God, at the end, what he's working towards is to bring us back to what he had in mind for us in the first place. That perfection, that paradise, and that perfect union with him. So it's, it's full circle, folks. What started in Genesis, the prophets spoke of, He chose a race out of Abraham's loins, brought forth a miracle son, Isaac, brought forth the race of the Jews through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they can be the holders of the promise and the word, bring forth the Messiah, who would eventually bring us all the way around and redeem back everything the devil stole from us. God wants to give it all back to us, everything he intended for us in the beginning. So Peter proclaims this to the men of Israel. Um, Why does he speak it specifically to the men of Israel? Because this offer of salvation was given, made first to the Jews. Frankie, would you read Romans 1.16 and then Romans 2.10? We've got both of those. Okay. Uh, Romans 1.16 states, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Amen. And then Romans 2.10. Okay, states, But glory, honor, and peace to every man who works good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Okay. And that's basically what um, Peter is is also speaking here as he winds up his sermon. So I'm going to land the plane here with his sermon, starting in verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me, from your brethren, to him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and his successors onward, also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets, you men of Israel. And the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, All the families of the earth shall be blessed, men of Israel. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So the offer of salvation was made first to the Jews. And Frankie read those two scriptures which um, confirm that. And Peter is, is, the Holy Spirit is working through Peter to bring conviction upon these men of Israel of like, yes, we were the chosen ones of God whom he gave his truth and his promises to first, and we rejected it. But we can now turn from our wicked ways, and we can 
still receive the blessing. God has still made an opening. So um, in chapter 4, we're going to pick up with chapter 4, I think, on Monday. That's where the resistance to this great movement will begin. But tucked in chapter 4, in verse 4, we see the results of Peter's first and second sermon. Verse 4 says, But many of these who had heard the message believed, praise God, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So we went from 120 to 3,000 to 5,000. And it doesn't say the number of men. didn't count the women and children. So we're probably talking about 15 to 20,000. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) So how does this apply to us? These were intense transitional days. The book of Acts is a transition, a transition time for the Jews, the people of God, the chosen people, the keeper of the promises. It's, going to, it's now a transition that only Israel was God's chosen people to now the word is going to be available to all the world. Well, we are in intense transitional days ourselves right now, wouldn't you say? And a lot of what these people were doing is happening now in the United States. There are sermons being preached. (laughs) There is prayer like never before. There are solemn assemblies for repentance. We're seeing signs and wonders. We just had an answer to prayer in our own um, RBM family this morning. We heard about a miracle that happened in Frankie's family. There are salvations. There's baptisms, moving of the Holy Spirit. I think I see a lot of similarities between these chapters in Acts during this intense transitional time to what's happening within the church and in the United States now. When John Dunn was teaching the other day um, about Pentecost, he pointed out that about 120 people were in that upper room. That's where it began with 120. Then, after Peter's first sermon, 3,000 were saved. And now after this second sermon that I've just gone through, 5,000 men were saved, but maybe 20,000 people. So what about your little group of 120, you know, as a type? Maybe it's not 120, maybe it's 12, maybe it's 15, maybe it's 20 gathering in your living room. Maybe it's your, your little Bible study, your prayer group, your life group, your Sunday school class, your house church, those who are coming together, starting to come back together in your church. Could such a powerful work of repentance and returning and refreshing come to you? Could it begin with you and could it begin to spread out to others as you testify of what God is doing? Based on this word, based on the things we are seeing, I say, yes, it can. These are difficult times. These were difficult times, turbulent times in Israel. But look what God was doing. And these are difficult times for us right now, but look what God is doing. Don't just look at all the negative stuff. Look what God is doing in these days. Return, repent, return, obey and act, and expect God to do great and marvelous things. Amen? Pray for you today that you will... You will exhort those that you're in fellowship with. Let's repent, let's turn, and let's expect a time of refreshing and revival to come to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Que é o mundo meu viver 